Welcome to episode 12 of the Fire Safety Matters podcast, where we bring you the latest news, views and opinion from across the UK's dedicated fire industry. My name's Brian Sims and I'm the editor of Fire Safety Matters magazine. We're delighted that this podcast is sponsored by the Fire Safety Event, which runs at the NEC in Birmingham on the 27th, 28th and 29th of April 2021. To register for the show, visit www.firesafetyevent.com. As always, I'm joined on the Fire Safety Matters podcast by my colleague Mark Sennett, the CEO at Western Business Media. Hi, Mark. What have you been up to since we last spoke on the podcast? Busy as always, Brian. Plenty of irons in the fire. And actually, on the next episode of the podcast, as we'll say later, Warren, another new thing linked to FSM that we'll be announcing to everyone. So, yeah, keeping busy. How have you been? Very well, thanks, Mark. So, obviously, for those of you that are regular listeners to the podcast, we start off with our review of the news. And if you want to see the latest news in the fire safety sector, Brian does a great job of covering this daily Go to fsmatters.com, which is our website, and not only can you see daily the breaking news there, but you can also sign up to get the print magazine five times a year for free, or you can look at the digital edition of the magazine up there for free, or you can sign up to get any news alert that comes out every Tuesday. So well worth going there for your latest news, as well as following Brian through the world of social media. But let's have a quick review then of the big stories that Brian's covered in the last 14 days. And there's nothing better, Brian, that you and I enjoy than a good old-fashioned slugfest between the government and the opposition. So it feels like the perfect way to start off this episode. So the government says it's committed to implementing the Grenfell Tower inquiry recommendations and the findings from Grenfell. But Keir Starmer, who's obviously the leader of Labour and the leader of the opposition, has accused the government of a dereliction of duty after it rejected measures from the Grenfell entire inquiry that have come out so far. So obviously the government has been quick to hit back at this. So now Robert Jenrick, who's the Secretary of State for Housing, Communities and Local Government, has responded to the accusations and claimed that implementing the recommendations is definitely going to happen and that the government wanted to consult residents of social housing and the industry first. Jenrick has said it would be irresponsible to put the measures in place before we even finish listening to the sector on the best possible way to do this so it actually works. The issue has been brought to the fore since the government rejected the Labour amendment to the Fire Safety Bill, which, as Brian, we have covered before, has had its first reading in Parliament, which would have ensured the recommendations from the first phase of the Grenfell Tower Inquiry were put in place. Recommendations from phase one of the Grenfell Tower Inquiry were published in October last year, duly calling for action on building owners or managers to share information with their local fire and rescue service and the design and materials used in external walls to undertake regular inspections of individual flat entrances and doors and lifts and share evacuation and fire safety instructions with residents of the building. Brian, as I said, nothing we enjoy more than a good bit of posturing from the government and the opposition. I know you're going to have more to add to this. I think it's worth noting that obviously the Grenfell Tower Inquiry hasn't concluded yet. Phase one has and has concluded, but we're into phase two. It's restarting now. I'm pretty confident the government will stick to implementing these recommendations. But I do know from sitting, as I said many times before, in the Fire Sector Federation, they still continue to request feedback from all parts of the associations related to the fire sector. Having spoke to Ian Moore, who's obviously our main guest this week, you'll hear that Ian and the FIA continue to feed in and have good open lines of communication with the government on this. Now, if some of you feel I'm being too complimentary towards our government on there, I would also say, you know, in years gone by, it's been pretty apparent that a Conservative government will always want the industry to self-regulate more than putting red tape in. But we have two major pieces of legislation for the first time coming, and long overdue, 
you know, the fire safety bills we're talking about here is going to come in in one form or another. And of course, the building safety bill is also having its first reading. So as much as a conservative government can normally be accused of wanting the industry to self-regulate, I do think this particular government in the wake of Grenfell is committed to making regulatory change. And there's two pieces of legislation that are going to show that. So, Brian, I think you've got a bit more you want to add to this before we move on. Yes, it's back to the Labour Party view of things, Mark. Uh, Labour Party's amendment required flat owners or building managers in England and Wales to share information with the local fire and rescue service about the design of external walls and the materials used to carry out regular inspections of lifts and individual flat entrance doors and also share evacuation and fire safety instructions with the residents of a given building. Uh, Sarah Jones, who's Labour's Shadow Home Office Minister for Policing and Fire, has stated, and I quote, We've seen with COVID-19 what can be done if there's political will. Hospitals have been built in days and whole systems restructured to respond where there's a need. If the political will was there, the government would support this new cause and we could take one step in the direction of keeping the promises that we all made in those days and weeks after the Grenfell Tower fire. Jones went on to state, Labour will continue to press the government to do the right thing, deliver on its promises and ensure that unsafe cladding is ripped off urgently. There should be no backsliding on a commitment that a fire like Grenfell can never happen again. Yes, yeah, so Brian, the thing I would add there is I don't think the government are backtracking. They've made millions and millions of pounds worth available to remedy and remove unsafe cladding. So I don't actually think that's fair comment by the opposition there. But at the same time, absolutely, as the opposition, Labour should be pressing the government to make sure as many of the findings of the inquiry do come out. Now, it's almost as though we've practiced this, Brian, but our next news story follows on quite nicely from it, doesn't it? So do you want to fire away with the next one we want to cover? It does indeed, Mark. The Royal Institution of Chartered Surveyors has been made aware that unqualified individuals may be signing off EWS1 forms, a practice which the organisation strongly condemns. The EWS1 form is a set way for a building owner to confirm to valuers and lenders an external cladding system on residential buildings has been assessed by a suitable expert in line with the latest government advice. The EWS1 is a form introduced as part of a new external wall fire review process valuing high-rise buildings. The form itself was introduced in December last year in response to the Grenfell Tower fire back in 2017. The form designates whether the external wall of a building or attachments to the external wall, such as cladding, are at low risk for fire. The results of a form is used by mortgage lenders in decision-making regarding buying, selling, mortgaging and remortgaging properties within that building. If a form is requested by a lender, the property is considered valueless until such time that the form is completed. If the form designates that the building is at higher risk for fire, remedial work is required before mortgage providers would lend on it. EWS1 form must be completed by a fully qualified member of a relevant professional body within the construction sector with sufficient expertise to identify the relevant materials within the external wall cladding and attachments, including whether or not fire-resisting cavity barriers and fire stopping have been installed correctly. A list of suggested bodies to contact in order to source fire experts and information about the full competencies required can be found on the RICS website at www.rics.org. UK banks and building societies have robust measures in place to protect people against fraud, which would pick up any EWS1 form that's suspicious. But the RICS encourages everyone to check the signature on a form with a professions institution. If an RICS member is completing an EWS1 form, the host organisation can check their membership on the RICS website. The RICS, UK Finance and the Building Societies Association do not approve individual persons who can deliver the EWS1 and cannot advise on who can and cannot complete EWS1 form or process. 
However, Mark, they would anticipate that only qualified and chartered members of relevant professional bodies, such as the Institution of Fire Engineers and the RICS itself, will have the necessary self-assessed competence and professional indemnity insurance needed to carry out such work. What are your thoughts on this one, Mark? Oh, God, Brian. You know, th this feels like a never-ending circle. We come back to the same thing about competency, competency, competency. That last paragraph there that you've covered, that last segment of that where you're talking about who is and who isn't competent and that RICs and UK finance or associations can't guarantee that someone is competent is exactly the issue the fire sector faces and exactly the issue that we keep discussing when we have the Fire Industry Association on, BAFE on. It's all about competence. And it's good to see that competency is the buzzword, as we've said many times before in the sector, because it needs to be. Because Warren Spencer, who obviously will be our regular recurring guest on this, a couple of episodes ago did talk about these EWS1 forms and the legal side of it in terms of needing to have a competent person. So I'd urge you to go back and listen to past editions of this podcast and listen to what Warren had to say on that. But Brian, my, my, my thoughts on it are very simple. If this isn't proof of why there needs to be more done to get competency and certification in the sector, I don't know what is. One thing I can tell you, nothing will get building owners and occupants to take this more seriously than if they get turned down for whether it's insurance or whether it's for a mortgage. And, and this, this is a good step. But, but the question is, how do you know someone's competent? And that is where BAFE and the FIA... And, and particularly BAFE, I would say here, um, and NSI and SSAIB come in. Those are the people that are competent to carry out fire safety work. And those are the people that are stepping in where the government won't regulate to set a certain standard of what it is. So the industry is self-regulating. Go to NSI or SSAIB approved company um, and same with BAFE. And those are the people that are safe to carry out work as well yes as as you said ricks have competent people on their books as do the ife but ultimately brian that's the key issue here competency 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 because like every episode we talk about this and you need to make sure you are only using someone that is competent and the best way that you can do that is using those organizations because ultimately if you don't take this seriously you don't fill in these forms or it's done fraudulently You've got serious issues, and we all know that two-thirds of buildings that are lost to a major fire, those businesses don't recover. Two-thirds. It's a staggering statistic that still holds true. Two-thirds of businesses that lose their premises to fire never restart. And that's the risky run here of not getting insurance payouts or not getting your mortgage to, to get the premises that you want if you don't fill in these forms properly. Or if you do and they found to be fraudulent and you have an issue, you've got a much, much bigger issue. It will it will kill your business, let alone the obvious elephant in the room I haven't addressed of the life safety perspective of that. That's kind of my rant for the week. We've gone somewhat political this week, Brian, which I know you and I enjoy, but we've got a great first guest who works very closely with all elements of government. So who have we got this week, Brian, as our first guest? Our first guest on this edition of the Fire Safety Matters podcast is Ian Moore, CEO of the Fire Industry Association, who now makes his second appearance on the FSM podcast, having previously joined us on episode two. 
Ian has been CEO at the FIA since September 2015. Prior to this, he served as the managing director of several companies operating in the fire and security industry, the most recent of them being Elmdean International. Ian has also served as chairman of the British Security Industry Association's Export Council and as a member of the BSIA's operating board. Recently, I chatted with Ian about a number of key subjects, and in particular, the major news concerning BAFE acquiring the FIA's awarding organisation. Thank you very much for joining us again on the podcast. How are things at the Fire Industry Association at the moment? Pretty much uh, still doing the same things. It, it seems to be more hours than it ever has been before. I think because you're more available. I think the nice thing about this is you can actually do 10 meetings a day. And it it may sound a lot, but it really isn't. It's quite comfortable to do that. So the volume of work is definitely up. We have the office now fully manned. We have a minimum of two people at all time in the office fully isolated so the two meter isolations there we're running training now uh, downstairs we've been doing that for well over well nearly two months now so that's going very well well spaced out well received and we go through all the correct procedures as per government with heat guns and uh, testings and all these different things we do so we're doing classroom and we've also even started doing some hotels are now starting to open up so we've done a few hotel training sessions so I wouldn't say we're back to normal, but I think this is, this is as near to the normal as, as is acceptable at the moment. And everybody's favourite phrase, the new normal, uh, I think that's where we are at the moment. And I'm kind of quite happy going in twice a week and working from home three days. It's, it's, I think that's a, an optimised efficiency. And I think you do need to go in, good for morale for the team, good to do my bit to help out as well, to make sure there's people in the office. Certainly, it's good to have quick conversations with people face-to-face because as human beings, we tend to react by people's expressions and uh, you can tell pretty quickly whether people are interested in what you're saying or they're not, whether they believe you, don't believe you, uh, are happy or unhappy. And that's very, very hard to tell when you're sat there on a, on a CCTV monitor because I think you'd, cause you're never talking to the eyes, you're always talking to the face you see underneath it so nobody's making eye-to-eye contact you can't do it can you share your take on the recent major news about BAFE acquiring the fire industry association's awarding organization yeah it's it's, it's brand new uh, i mean it's literally not even a week old the decision on this and there's still a ways to go to make sure that the the handover is smooth and i'll tell you a little bit more about the whys and wherefores in a second but uh, the most the biggest priority we're trying to get across to everybody is about continuity and, and this is looking at past, current and future people are going through training and how it affects them to make sure that they fully understand it makes no difference. There'll be no difference in the value of what they get and what they get. The processes will be exactly the same. So the customer effectively will see absolutely zero difference. The only difference they'll see is when the certificate comes to them on the top, it'll say BAFE whereas previously it said FIAAO. Why we did it? I think I think it's kind of historic to look at where BAFE came from originally. I mean, BAFE was part of FIA, the previous organisations altogether, which was uh, FITA and BFPSAA, a whole group of companies. And when you start to realise that you're looking at certification schemes, you look to conflicts of interest and things that go on, and it was logical for BAFE 
to be separated, no more Chinese walls and stand on its own two feet. It, it reached that sort of level of maturity. It was ready to stand on its own two feet. And that's proven to be working really, really well. So that was a solid decision made uh, whenever that was, seven, eight years ago. I can't remember exactly when. This is the same situation. We tend to be thought leaders, I believe. So the idea of coming up with level three qualifications in the fire industry, we knew that's where we wanted to go. This is on the back of us having third-party certification for companies, all of our members. So we're not only looking at competency of companies, we're now looking at the competency of individuals. And it's the nearest thing we're going to get to mandating uh, this because the government won't mandate it. There is no chance of that happening. They're looking for industry to create the pull-through, shall we say. So in other words, people should start to demand that people are qualified to do the job they are being hired to do. And now there are those qualifications, there's no excuse. So you look at plausible denial in some situations and situations where people say, well, I think I did the best I can do. Well, no, you didn't. You could have hired qualified people. You could have hired qualified companies uh, to do the job and they were available and, and very apparent. So it's really for the industry now to adopt this. And we're going to start pushing hard now on, on industry to say, you need to be asking these questions of your people and your companies. So why FIA, why to BAFE? We're looking for a neutral position for BAFE to go to. Uh, Ofqual were always very, very keen that we separated the training centre from the awarding organisation. Uh, we had it pretty strong in the office, but they're in the same office. And as much as we had different servers and machines and different staffing, they didn't talk to each other, absolutely not. It's still in the same building. And as every now and again you overhear something you maybe you shouldn't do and it becomes a situation where we need to prove to the outside world that, you know, it's a bona fide separation. And so the BAFE idea came up um, some time ago and it's been under discussion for some time. And there were other people we were talking to as well about the same separation of, of the AO. But eventually BAFE came through with a, a stronger offering and it's not about money. Yes, there's money involved because we have to repay our members, their investments into this. But it's really about where the right home for it to be. And it was no point turning it to another trading company, effectively. It had to be somebody independent. BAFE was a logical home. They're very, very thankful for it. They're really excited about it. They see it as a true extension to where they want to go. We think it's the perfect place. And we've had, I wouldn't say nothing but compliments. Unfortunately, you always find somebody who wants to pipe up and find criticism in everything you do. And that's probably even breathing. They'll probably complain about that. But, you know, we, 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 we joke about it. We never respond to those people. All we do is just get on with things, talk about the things we do well. And the AO going to BAFE is a good decision. And we're very proud of what we've done. Uh, and we're going to really look forward to working with BAFE. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't go away from us. Uh, we're still going to be very much involved in the way that we understand what they're trying to achieve and guide them as best we can. And the next two months will be the litmus test for us, really, to make sure that it's happening very smoothly. But we've got dedicated teams on it. We've got a lot of people, a lot of questions. They've already set up their awarding organization called FireQual, the registered company. So it's just a smooth transition. And at no time, anybody will see a crack in any of that transition. There's a good deal more to the FIA than its role as the leading provider of training in the fire sector. 
The FIA is well known for being very active in terms of communicating with government, for example. On that note, can you tell us the extent to which the FIA has been involved in the independent review of building regulations and fire safety conducted by Dame Judith Hackett? Yeah, I mean, the first thing I'll pick up on is to say that you're not just a training company. It's actually a valuable thing to say because that's what most people think of us. The, the, the trading arm, our training centre, is very much secondary to the actual reason, the raison d'etre of the FIA. The FIA is a trade association, and the trade association is there to utterly represent our members. We just felt that there wasn't decent enough training going on around that we could govern, we could use our, our large membership to contribute towards, to shape the questions, the syllabuses, all these different things. And we felt that was a logical extension. But our primary focus in the FIA uh, should never be forgotten, and that is as a trade association. So you're quite right. I mean, to me, the training arm will look after itself because of the quality of what it does. And it's improving all the time through its online and now back to physical. Uh, but we won't talk about the training. Let's talk about you know, the, the trade association work. We set up special interest groups and invite all number of people, not just FIA members. We make sure we get a very broad aspect of all stakeholders. And we look at things very recently like the premises information boxes um, in each building now becoming more into the spotlight following what happened with Grenfell and the, the aftermath of all that. So we formed a special interest group. So we do the logistics of it. We put it all on. And then we get Steve Norman from London Fire Brigade to chair it. We look at other uh, special interest groups on the fire bill, which we did. Uh, we had uh, Colin Todd, who's a very uh, prestigious and well-respected leader of the uh, fire risk assessment world. He was chairing that one. So we get everybody together, ask them all the questions, try to come up with a solid answer and represent the industry and all its stakeholders. So fire bill, premises information, fire doors. Uh, we're looking at fire drills. During COVID, I mean, it's one of those sort of things you look at, you talk about a health and safety aspect. Nobody went through the process of thinking, well, what's changed through COVID of a fire drill? There's nobody in the building. But if the building's like a factory and it's fully manned. You've got to adapt your fire drills to cope with the two meter distancing. So we've written a lot of guidance documents on that. And that was a special interest group that's gone in. So MHC, MHCLG, as in the government, get the benefits of the work we do. But as we're not for profit, as you know, this is what we're about. We're about raising that bar and information, guidance documents, professionalism, everything about our industry, trying to represent it. You've recently partnered with us here at Western Business Media with the purpose of compiling an annual guide to UK fire safety, the first edition of which will be published in December next year alongside Fire Safety Matters. You're also going to be partnering with us on an annual Fire and Security Matters Awards scheme. Could you explain why you've decided to go down this route to market, Ian? We get a lot of offers of this sort of type, as you can probably imagine, but we felt that what the, the, the way that the awards was explained, let's talk about the awards first of all. You can never do enough to, to reward people for the, their efforts they do. And we have various different awards in different areas, but these, these are definitive. So we're, we're very keen to do you know, the awards because being measured by the people from all aspects of the fire industry, uh, and I know quite a few of the judges because you told me beforehand who they're going to be, I'm more than happy to work with them as I have done previously. And we'll give our views from all aspects about various people. And let's reward people for doing a good job. 
you know, if they're willing to step up and do better than other people, to do as they should do in life safety systems, then we need to make sure that people are rewarded. Every industry has its awards, and this, this is no exception, and we should be rewarding people for doing a good job. As for the magazine, there is a number of things, uh, levels of this. It's, it gives us an opportunity also for our people to write some stories and put some input, our members. And a lot of the things we've do, done previously is really on the fire and rescue service side of, side of things. We're quite keen to sort of stretch it into other areas that people understand about the work that the fire industry does that you don't see every day. The work on false alarm reject, rejection, the work on new technologies to try and uh, lower prices, new technologies to take to you know to take advantage of the the latest and greatest Wi-Fi's and uh, and connectivities, the Internet of Things. We have a special interest group on special in, uh, on the Internet of Things ongoing as well, special interest group, and that we can feed through to the magazine. So these are really relevant, up to the dates, up to date stories that are not historically somebody trying to flog their bit of kit and telling them how great their detector is over somebody else's. It's really talking about the technology and where it's going and the advantages of that technology for the customer. So there's a whole load of aspects there. With much new legislation coming in, Ian, there really isn't a better or indeed a more opportune time to be analysing the state of play in the UK's fire market. What's your take on that assertion? Yeah, it's going to be a huge year next year. I think a lot of things are going to be uh, coming to their, their natural fruition. Decisions will be made in different areas. But all of these decisions, you've got to remember what the government will and won't do. They'll make some mandated changes, of course. But when it comes down to the majority of this work, it will be the industry needs to adopt it. And it's really, really important. And this is what the Hackett report was saying in many areas. Like, pull your socks up, guys. It's down to you. You know, you, you as an industry need to govern yourself, look after yourself. There are certain key posts that are going to be put into place that will be mandated. But the Scottish government, you know, also have done a fantastic job in the way they have naturally taken on board and changed things a lot quicker than us. And there's some changes that are happening. You look at Wales, for instance, with... Um, sprinklers into domestic properties. You know, the devolved areas are making decisions quicker than, than central government, maybe because of the physical size and, uh, that's, and, and the slowness of it because of the physical size. I don't know. But the bottom line is we, we are uh, getting to that time now that decisions have to be made. Enough research has been done. We've talked about it enough. There's been endless meetings endless steering groups in different directions, expert committees, and there have been thousands of them. Now is the crux of it, is to come down and let's make decisions to make a difference. Finally, and for the benefit of our readers who want to find out more about the work of the FIA, what's the easiest way for them to do so? How about your website, for example? Yeah, it's www.fia.uk.com. And you'll find absolutely everything on that website and uh, it's updated daily in all areas. So returning our focus to the news, I mean, there's a lot of big news stories that have actually come out, Brian, in the last couple of weeks. We've kind of been blessed in terms of stuff to get our teeth into. And the Association for Specialist Fire Protection 
has given a detailed response to the pre-legislative consultation on the building safety bill. So in the first part of the news, we covered the fire safety bill. Well, now we're going into the other big bill that's coming in, the building safety bill. So the ASFP has submitted evidence to the pre-legislative consultation of the building safety bill, as I said, while broadly welcoming the bill as an important step towards the implementation of Dangerous Hackett's Building a Safest Future report. The ASFP has outlined a number of concerns relating to how the bill will ensure appropriate testing installation, ongoing market surveillance of safety critical products and systems. The ASFP encourages the move to increase the rigour of construction products focused regulation for safety critical products. The organisation has advocated mandatory third party certification of passive fire protection products for many years now and recognises that this legislation will eventually make that a reality. However, the ASFP harbours concerns about the proposed product testing regime, primarily around how the products with European so UK technical assessment, so ETAs or UKTAs, will be treated. The draft text of the bill gives products with a UK technical assessment exemption from any safety critical status, a move which ASFP believes could potentially lead to a loophole. Since ETAs and UKTAs are not mandatory and there are no minimum requirements for properties within scope of the technical assessment, the ASFP recommends that product families must be defined along with an appropriate level of testing. The association believes that all products within a product family should be tested, assessed and certified based upon individual tests of products and systems to ensure that the products cannot gain entrance into the marketplace based upon tests conducted by one manufacturer. The apparent lack of legislation covering the installers of safety critical products and systems is a significant concern for ASFP. While the current building safety bill text suggests that installers will have to meet a future requirement for a competency-based scheme, the ASFP considers this an inadequate level of response and is calling for some form of regulation of installers. Well, again, this loops back to what we said at the start. I don't disagree with Niall Rowan and the ASFP on this at all. No one is better placed than Niall and ASFP to give comment on this. Absolutely, what you covered there in that article, Brian, is absolutely true. ASFP have banged on the door for a long time concerns in this area for third party certification. They absolutely have. And, you know, as I say, good luck for them to say to get some form of regulation for installers. I think they might have to keep banging that drum for a while more. I don't think the government is going to be massively forthcoming on that. It's probably, as I said earlier, going to end back up to the industry having to self-regulate itself if it's serious about that. Yeah, you know, this is obviously the first reading of the bill. And it's got a long way to go before it gets through Parliament. And Niall and the ASSP's feedback is very, very welcomed on this. And I would certainly hope the government would take it seriously. I can certainly understand what the concerns are here, Brian, that the ASFP have have raised. And hopefully this is something that the government will listen to. I think you've got something more you want to add to it, don't you, Brian? Yes, Mark. The ASFP, which has long called for mandatory third-party certification for installers of passive fire protection products, recommends that the government mandate a body specifically to establish the competence levels required within the construction sector and to oversee their implementation. Furthermore, the ASFP has highlighted the historical challenges of market surveillance under the European Construction Products Regulation System, noting that EU member state authorities charged with market surveillance under the CPR have not had the necessary skills and experience. Having been informed that a new product regulator would be created in here in the UK, possibly under the remit of the Office of Product Safety and Standards, the association notes that the draft building safety bill does not clearly identify this. 
The text within the bill in fact states that market surveillance tasks are to be carried out by relevant authorities and identifies a number of possible ones, generally under the auspices of local authorities themselves. The ASFP believes such a structure would be unable to address all of the complex issues related to construction products testing, assessment, certification and installation, and also calls for the introduction of a regulator at the national level. Commenting on the association's response to the consultation process, ASFP CEO Niall Rowan, who you remember was a guest on episode five of the Fire Safety Matters podcast, has stated, the Building Safety Bill seems to lay the path and take the first tentative steps towards implementing most of the recommendations from the Building Safety Future report. The devil, however, is in the detail of how this is followed up. Although this bill makes a primary enabling legislation, Given the necessary powers, we still need to see how the secondary legislation will be written and implemented to ensure that all the recommendations are duly met. Rowan also went on to comment, We believe the products and systems manufactured and installed by our members come fairly and squarely within any definition of safety critical. We have a number of concerns with regards to the application of the legislation, the installation, testing and market surveillance of these safety critical products and wish to make certain representations to ensure the correct outcome regarding the provisions for passive fire protection. So plenty of food for thought there, Mark. Yeah, plenty to digest this week, but we've still got one more news story. Brian, what have you got for us? Yes, Mark, the Royal Institute of British Architects has announced what it says may be the biggest shake-up of the profession since the 1950s, driven partly in response to government pressure in the wake of the Grenfell Tower tragedy and growing concern about the climate. The new educational framework signifies a different direction for architecture education and continuing professional development, with a greater emphasis on life safety and, importantly for us, including fire, Mark. The Way Ahead document duly outlines Reba's new education professional development framework. For the first time, the RIBA has developed a single standard covering pre- and post-registration education and professional development. Key components of the new framework, Mark, include education themes and values, mandatory competencies, career role levels, a core CPD curriculum, specialisms and accreditation. The education professional development framework will be phased in over two years, beginning in 2021. The way ahead, which outlines the changes, gives advance notice of these developments to schools of architecture, CPD providers themselves, practices and members, such that they can respond to and implement the necessary changes. Adrian Dobson, the RIBA's Executive Director of Professional Services, has said, after 40 years of deregulation in UK society, there was an appetite to rebalance professional standards against commercial imperatives. RIBA President Alan Jones has said the change was due, adding, The education of future chartered architects and the professional development of those who already achieve chartered status needs a sharpened focus on the core knowledge, skills and experience required to respond to the immediate and mid-term challenges facing our world, society and industry in general. The first mandatory competence, health and life safety, including fire safety, Mark, will be introduced next year with architects expected to pass a test demonstrating their competence in this particular area. An RIBA statement observes, and I quote, It's key that, across society, we're embedding fire safety knowledge at all levels to ensure that we're making society better, safer and more competent, particularly so in the realm of fire safety. Beyond the breadth of these changes, another great aspect of the new education professional development framework is the idea of recertifying to ensure that professionals are kept up to date on the latest changes and can become familiar with best practice. Do you have any thoughts on this one, Mark? 
Well, CPD is a really key aspect of competency and career development. It's something that we're committed to, and we've covered it in the past, Brian. We're very, very proud that we are the only publication in the sector that if you read Fire Safety Matters, either the digital version or the physical print magazine, you can self-certify CPD points that will be allocated to you by the Institute of Fire Safety Managers. You don't have to be an IFSM member to do that. You could be with another body, but you can attribute yourself a number of points for reading our magazine. That's something we're very, very proud of and is a testament to you for the great quality content that we put in there. But it doesn't just stop there. If you go to our website, which is fsmatters.com, if you click on the webinars tab, the last few webinars that we've done are also offering CPD points. We'll actually send you a certificate from us and IFSM for that. So we, just like Reba, are absolutely committed to career development and CPD. And in fact, there'll be even more coming your way that we can offer you in the coming weeks, which hopefully I'll be able to share with you very, very soon. So absolutely share the spirit of the intention that Reba are trying to do. And please do, as listeners and readers, take advantage of what we've got on offer. This is your professional journal. It's there for you. Take advantage of the CPD points. It's it, it's a great, we passionately feel it's a great learning opportunity for anyone that reads our content and takes part in our webinars. So speaking of career development advice, this seems like a perfect segue now to our second guest, a recurring guest, Warren Spencer. Warren Spencer is a leading fire safety lawyer in the UK. He's prosecuted more cases under the fire safety order than any other lawyer in the UK. And this is really a segment where we give some some legal advice out there. We cover some topics that are very much related to fire safety law. So I hope you enjoy it. I sat down with Warren earlier today and here's what he had to say. Morning Warren, how are you? I'm fine, thank you Mark. And yourself? Yeah, all good, all good. Got an interesting question for you today. And we were talking off air and it was an interesting question that we had together and I thought I'd share it with everybody. The question I had for you is, do you think as a result of Grenfell, this has affected the Fire and Rescue Service's approach to investigations into major fires in terms of who's responsible, everything from occupiers, designers, building control, risk assessors. Do you, do you think Fire and Rescue Service's approach to enforcement has changed now? Definitely. Uh, the the impact of the ongoing inquiry um, and the analysis of, of the role played by the designers, the, um, the management companies, the council um, and all the different parties, the manufacturers of cladding, etc. Um, it, it, it's illustrated the importance of everybody within the process, um, which is what Dame Judith Hackett's report emphasised. And I think fire services have taken from both the ongoing inquiry and, and the Hackett report to now look at uh, who has had control over buildings over a period of time and, and, and assessing whether or not culpability arises out of that. Um, and I don't wish to talk about Grenfell, but in relation to other cases, um, the, the fire services are now recognising that if buildings are built in an unsafe way, um, which could lead to a problem further down the road, then that's something that they must consider under the fire safety order. Uh, and um, the way in which the fire safety bill is progressing, I think, is encouraging that kind of approach. 
Now, I have no doubt that we will talk more and more as time goes on about the fire safety bill. And as you all have seen, Labour, the opposition, has tabled a potential amendment to the fire safety bill. And we will come back to that on a future episode. But one thing I want to say out to our listeners now, we're getting some pretty good engagement from you guys and feedback on this. If you'd like to ask any questions to Warren, you can do so. All you need to do is go on to LinkedIn or Twitter and use the hashtag FSM podcast and we'll get your question on one of the upcoming episodes. Now, Warren and I are also working on something that we should be able to announce on the next episode of the podcast, which should be great to give you even further legal insight. So tune back in next time for a bit of announcement from us. But in the meantime, Warren, if people want to get hold of you, what's the best way to do so? As you just said, uh, LinkedIn in particular is very good for messaging and getting hold of me, putting in my name and Twitter. Um, there's the Fire Safety Law website or Blackhurst Bud Solicitors. Uh, any of those uh, methods will be fine. Thanks, Warren. Great to speak to you again. Thank you, Mark. guest on this edition of the Fire Safety Matters podcast is Tony Hanley, the Managing Director of FirePro UK and Ireland, the distributor for FirePro. FirePro is an LPCB certificated fire suppression technology that doesn't use pressurised gas or water. In the wake of studying for an ONC in electronics at South East London Technical College, Tony joined the active fire systems industry serving in field engineering and commissioning roles before moving into sales. He formed Titan Fire and Security in 1986, with the business being acquired in 2016. Tony is a volunteer board director of the Fire Industry Association and, on behalf of the organisation, is currently focusing his attentions on membership recruitment and retention. Earlier this week, Mark chatted with Tony about the issue of third-party certification when it comes to fire suppression systems. Morning, Tony. How are you? Yeah, um, good morning, Mark. I'm really, really good. Thanks ever so much, and I uh, hope you're well too. Yeah, all good. We've known each other a long time, and I'm very familiar with FirePro UK. But for the benefit of our listeners, can you tell us a bit more about FirePro UK? We effectively are the engineering hub uh, for sales and support behind the product, and we supply third-party accredited uh, BAFE or LPS uh, 1014 fire system specialists uh, with the product, which is not just a case of supply in a box. Um, We assist with all sorts of issues as far as the uh, specification of the product. So we need to drive some uh, demand, which has been interesting, it's been positive. Um, But then most importantly, we want to make sure that the systems are designed correctly, installed correctly, commissioned. So we have an element of our business which spends quite a bit of time out in the field working with um, the installers. So every suppression agent has its trade-offs. And as I said, I'm very familiar with where your product should be installed. But where do you think the strengths lie in the FirePro product? Because the technology is is relatively new by comparison, first and foremost, there's absolutely nothing wrong with any fire suppression medium in the market. Every single one of them, as you say, has got strengths and weaknesses. As far as our product is concerned or the FirePro product is concerned, we have particular strengths in so much as we are suited to most classes of fire. We are also applicable to a number of risk types. And our systems are not, we, we don't involve pipes or cylinders 
hydraulic calculations, etc., etc. And everything is actually electrical and it's mounted within the risk either on the wall or on the ceiling. We have a lifespan of around about 15 years, depending on the application, and we're suitable for lithium-ion battery storage risks, which is something else we can come on to. Now, I know that you've been passionate about talking about the, the benefits of this system and the reliability of the system. In fact, you've written articles for us in the past sharing case studies where you've helped NHS trusts actually stop having repeat fires in certain kinds of machineries. I think it was a, it was a washing machine to keep different items clean. Now, when we were talking off air, we were talking about third-party certification. So mm. the question I have for you is, would you welcome a third-party certification scheme for condensed aerosol in fire suppression systems? Yeah, well, I, it's, it's a good it's a good question. We do have third parties. I was a big advocate, um, being a director of the FIA, I was a big advocate many, many moons ago when the Fire Industry Association said we are going to adopt third-party certification, i.e. the BAFE SP203 schemes. I think LPS had a scheme there. But the BAFE scheme, being modular, allowed different organisations to be certificated for the components of a fire suppression system. Uh, design, installation, commissioning, maintenance, etc. The evolution of those schemes has been fantastic because bit by bit by bit, both have brought out more and more modular schemes. But the bit that they're missing, in my opinion, is that so they've been fairly slow on the mark to recognise condensed aerosol, and in particular the FirePro product, which is LPCB certificated as a product itself. So we as a company have got to ensure that the people that are doing the designs, although we assist and with the installations, etc., etc., I, I, I believe that the product is only as good as the person that's designing it, installing it, and commissioning it, because it's a bit like any piece of technology. Unless you know what you're doing, then the chances are it's going to be a problem. So the part of the market that needs just a little bit of uh, tweaking, I think, in my opinion, as far as BAFE is concerned, is to come up with one of the SP203 derivative schemes specifically for condensed aerosol and that really does um for me would would sort of square the market off but we don't have one yet i'm pushing i'm pushing with the fia and pushing with the fpa pushing with both themselves and you just got to keep banging the drum well we'll come back to the fire pro product pipeline in a moment but obviously there's a lot of new key legislation currently having its first reading in parliament from the fire safety bill to the building safety bill and as an fia director and someone who's been in the sector a long time i wanted to ask you your views on this so what are your views on the new building safety bill and how it should incorporate suppression systems it's important to take generic terminology out of the bill itself so that people understand what the building is what its purpose is how it's designed etc etc because every single building is different and so what that means in terms of suppression systems is that suppression systems may be considered as part of the makeup of the fire precautions dependent on what the building is. So if the building is, you know, very low risk and it's low rise um, with, you know, very minimal complexity, then basic fire precautions should apply. But as, as, as buildings are becoming more and more complex, building materials are becoming more and more, let's say, flexible, environmentally friendly, et cetera, et cetera. And if you like, those components, I think, bring a different element of risk to how buildings are put together. So, Fire suppression systems, whether they're sprinklers, whether it's water mist, whether it's condensed aerosol or gas, should be an integral part of a design or a consideration for a design when 
the certain when the parameters, if you like, are exposed to say, okay, we've now got a certain amount of risk. Therefore, the bill should be able to to define when suppression systems should be considered. Let's go back to Firepro a moment. Can you share with us what's next in your product pipeline? Yes, no, it's not so much in the product pipeline itself, Mark, because the product has been in existence for a good 10 years in its current form. I think what is exciting is primarily the development of the testing that's been undertaken in Korea with a Korean battery manufacturer, i.e. lithium-ion battery manufacturer, and the FirePro Master Distributor in, in Korea. So they've undertaken extensive tests um, as far as the fire suppression qualities of the FirePro condensed aerosol product, which have been um, incredible um, in terms of not just suppression, but the most staggering thing was the hold times or the retention times, which under normal circumstances for normal suppression systems would be defined as 10 minutes. We've we've got some staggering results in terms of retention and the absence of reignition for up to 40 minutes. So if you like, I think the holy grail that the industry has been looking for for some time now is with the advent of renewable energy, storage cabins that are containing lithium-ion batteries right down to cars and all of the applications from small to large, the, the issue is primarily how to deal with the fire risk. It's a big it's a big problem for fire and rescue services. But I think with the Fire Pro research and development that's been done, and this information will be available through the Fire Pro website. And um, it's uh, it's it's very, 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 very exciting times. So we think at the end of the day, there aren't any other there's lots of detection products, but the actual suppression products, uh, like I say, are still looking for that holy grail. But I think, in all honesty, once you see the test results from what's been achieved, then it's pretty much there as far as FirePro is concerned. If people want to find out more information about FirePro, how can they get in touch with you, Tony? First and foremost is a website, which is uh, fireprouk.com. The way to contact us via email is sales at fireprouk.com. And we'll be happy to help in terms of sharing research data, product data, et cetera, et cetera. We have a number of third-party accredited fire systems installer businesses. We're always looking for new installers to join the clan, as it were, um, and uh, effectively, we're at the other end, the electronic email, and ready to talk. Brilliant, Tony. Always great to speak to you, my friend, and hope to see you very soon. Yes, indeed. Yeah, okie doke, Mark. appreciate that. Thanks for the opportunity, and uh, stay safe. edition of the Fire Safety Matters podcast. Many thanks indeed to Ian Moore from the Fire Industry Association, Warren Spencer of Blackhurst Bud Solicitors, and also Tony Hanley from FirePro UK for their valued contributions. You can read more on the issues raised here and others by visiting the Fire Safety Matters website at www.fsmatters.com. We do hope you've enjoyed the content and found it useful. On that note, please do contact us if there are any particular themes or issues you would like us to explore on upcoming broadcasts. You can do so on Twitter by using the hashtag FSMPodcast. Do make sure you follow us on Twitter at FSMatters underscore MAG. 
As a reminder, the 550 Matters podcast is live to view every fortnight on Wednesdays. Please do like and share the content and spread the word among your industry colleagues. You can listen to the 550 Matters podcast for free on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube or Podbean. All you need to do is enter the term 550 Matters into your chosen platform search box. We'll see you next time. (music) 